Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now your hosts, Bela Sebro. She's the nice one. And Alan Skorsky. Uh, he's not so nice. But together they are the definitive rap. I'm Alan Skorsky with Bela Seabrow, and welcome to the definitive rap, where we discuss the news items the mainstream media just won't touch. Most people have heard the saying, you can't make this bleep up. And usually we're talking about politicians who get away with things that nobody in their right mind could ever get away with. Today, we have a very special guest from Detroit, Michigan, Dr. David Tenenbaum, who is an expert in matters related to military equipment safety. And in just a few minutes, Bela will give him a proper introduction. In brief, in 1997, David Tenenbaum, while working at Michigan's Tank Automotive and Armaments Command Base for the U.S. military, he was falsely accused of spying for Israel. As I read David's book, Accused of Treason, the U.S. Army's Witch Hunt for a Jewish Spy, my blood boiled with the turn of every page. Here was a guy hired specifically because of his expertise and ingenuity in developing concepts to protect our troops who were vulnerable to attacks while driving in their high-mobility uh, multi-high-purpose wheeled vehicles in Iraq and in Somalia and in other hotspots around the world. He was given assignments to coordinate with his counterparts overseas and in Israel specifically because he spoke Hebrew. Yet, once he completed his assignment successfully, his colleagues and superiors turned on him and accused him of passing on information to Israel. It is important to note that David Tenenbaum was totally cleared and exonerated by the FBI, not that they couldn't find enough evidence to indict him, but that there was no evidence to begin with to have even have launched an investigation in the first place. In fact, they even increased his security clearance from secret to top secret, which was even further proof that he had done nothing wrong. I understand that I am giving a very brief synopsis of, of David's experience, which is why we have him on today to give more details. I know that, Bela, you had a few thoughts before you introduced David. Uh, thank you, Alan. Um, there have been many films about authentic spies and also those who were falsely accused of treason. But when it happens in real life that a good person who has been living his life by the rules on Shabbos, the Jewish day of rest, Armed FBI agents invade his home seeking evidence to back up false allegations of espionage. That's a whole other level. With us today is our guest, Dr. David Tenenbaum, who for the duration of the investigation lived a life like a movie that one watches. It, it can be best described as a witch hunt. He wrote about his experiences in his book, Accused of Treason. To give our listening audience a bit of a background, Dr. David A. Tenenbaum has been working for the U.S. Army as a civilian engineer since December 1984. He holds a bachelor's and master's in chemical engineering and a doctorate in business administration. 
He has extensive experience working with other countries in conducting risk assessment and assessing technologies around the world and developing business opportunities worldwide. Uh, in fact, one of his earlier primary responsibilities was to assess the safety of a specific military vehicle. I mean, many, I, I, from what I understand, specific military vehicles, and to help develop technologies to increase the safety of those vehicles. He managed uh, the gunner restraint program for the HMMWV, which we're going to hear about later, that prevented the gunner from being killed in the event of a rollover. And he was one of the primary designers of the restraint system, which has been applied to other military vehicles as well. He was one of the first scientist engineers in the U.S. to recognize the deficiency of the HMMWVs against IEDs and developed a program with the Israelis and Germans to ensure the safety of U.S. soldiers in these vehicles. Dr. Tenenbaum has been chosen for the highly competitive weapon system sustainment management, WSSM, program, as well as another competitive congressional program, the AMC Civilian Leadership Development Program, which meant that he was being fast-tracked for upper management. He was also selected to be the exchange engineer to Israel. He continues his fight to this day, to clear his name publicly and have the U.S. Army accept responsibility and be held accountable for their false accusations against him. There's the old adage that comes to my mind, no good deed goes unpunished. And also the age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people? Dr. Tenenbaum, there are many people who followed your harrowing experience during those years, but your story needs to be told in a very big way for every person to understand how this could happen in this day and age in a country like the United States. And thank you so much for agreeing to be on the definitive wrap. Dr. Tenenbaum, please explain to our listening audience what you were doing what project were you working on, and why was there an investigation conducted on you? First of all, I wanted to thank you, Bela and Alan, for having me on the program. Um, and that, it's an excellent question as to why, they, why the government decided the Army. I work, I'm a civilian engineer. I explain to people I'm not a contractor. I'm a civilian engineer that works for the government. So what prompted that to happen in the first place is I've always asked that question, but it did come out in, in the long run through discovery documents from uh, when we sued the government and from when the inspector general's office and the department of defense did their own investigation. And the, what they found I was guilty of, yes, it's true. I was guilty. I was guilty of being a Jew. And it came out that it was anti-Semitism. It was purely anti-Semitism. There was never any other reason for the investigation. My colleagues, like, quote, well, I thought well, my colleagues would um, apparently would go to the FBI. What, what happens is when you're working for the government or working for the Army or the Department of Defense, you're subjected to certain criteria. And if someone in the government feels that you're doing something wrong, espionage, treason, they have a, they have a legitimate right 
they have to automatically go to the FBI or someplace and say, we have a problem, something's going on here. And then the FBI comes in and does an investigation. They're called SAIDAs, Subversive Active Estonite Trick Against the Army. I had, from what I know of, at least seven SAIDAs filed against me from uh, 19, probably 86 or so, uh, for the, uh, 10 years after that, maybe less, where someone from the government, my colleague would say, he speaks Hebrew. That bothers us. That's suspicious. Oh. Keep, keeping in mind, my office was known as the United Nations. We had somebody there from Persia, somebody that spoke Taiwanese, someone that spoke Russian, German, and they come after me, the Jew, for speaking Hebrew to my kids on the phone. Uh, or though they came after me because the, we had four different liaison officers on our base. One of them was the Israeli. I spoke to all of them at different points in time. Israeli, I spoke in English and I spoke in Hebrew. And one person complained, Jew speaking to another Jew, Hebrew, that's a problem. The FBI come in and do an investigation. They said, there's nothing here. The guy didn't do anything wrong. Different, at different points in time, different Sayyidas all the time coming back, the FBI would come back and say, he didn't do anything wrong. So why did they come after me? It's, it's documented. It was because I was Jewish. So you were targeted because you were Jewish. Absolutely. Um, I didn't hang around with people after work. I didn't go to the strip clubs. I didn't go. I didn't. I brought my own food with me, so I didn't go out to eat with them. I was uncomfortable in my initial few few years at the government. If I was going out of town, I had to work with people. They would go out to a restaurant, so I'd go out and have a Coke. But after the first few years, I wasn't even comfortable going into the, re the restaurant. I wore Yamaka. So I, I'm not going to, I just wasn't comfortable doing that. So I just wouldn't go anymore. And I wasn't considered part of the good old boys club. Uh -huh. so it was problematic. And it was, it was not, it was not just that. I was, I was also told after this whole situation also was quote over, I was investigated and they said there was nothing here. The lead FBI agent that came over to my house was, he was special agent, Jim Cugino, he was dropping off everything they took out of my house. And he, um, he said, you know what your problem was, Tannenbaum? I said, no, Jim, enlighten me. And he said, you worked. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you were busy working. You would walk. You wouldn't just call somebody on the phone. You would walk. My base is like a square mile. You would walk to somebody's office and sit down and talk to them. You would ask them questions. They got a chance to know you. And people liked that. That it was a one-on-one. -on -one. It wasn't talking over the phone. It wasn't speaking by email. You were actually talking to somebody. And I was working on programs. I was initially hired from the government. When I remember my first interview, they said, "Oh, you know, you speak Hebrew. You've been to Israel. I learned in Israel. I was in yeshiva in Israel. You'd be great working with our Israeli programs." I said, "That's great." And that's what I first started doing when I came to take them. I was working programs at just Israel. Yeah, that's how you were recruited. So, yeah. David, David, you mentioned that uh, someone would file a complaint against you because you spoke Hebrew. I'm concerned about it. So the FBI does their investigation. They find there's nothing there. Do things go back to normal for you? Or now are you trying to look over your shoulders? Are you saying, you know what? I understand why they want to ask, but now it's been cleared. Now we're friends again. Or did you see, you know what? They reported on me once. Do I need to watch my shoulder more or look over my back more? Um, did the 
I guess, did the charges against you increase? Did they become more than just he speaking Hebrew now? And I know in your book, you spoke about your trip to Israel and that when you got back, uh, all of a sudden you're pulled in and they're asking all kinds of questions like, what did you have for breakfast nine months ago at the hotel and who'd you meet with? So if you can go into more detail, because I know that there's always a process. First, there's a report made against you. You're exonerated. Things can either go back to normal or it can become a red flag as to what's yet to come. Okay. So I'll answer that. I, you, obviously, this is just where you, nobody could see my face, but I'm smiling for a reason. I didn't know anything was going on behind my back. All these things that were filed against me, I had no clue what was happening. Um, I knew, and I, and I was, people would always call me naive, and I, I had no clue this was happening to the point, to the point where these things were filed against me, and uh, eventually it reached a point because there was nothing there. They kept going. The FBI said, "You, what are you doing to us? You keep coming to us, and there's nothing here. The guy has not done anything wrong. Give us something concrete." As a matter of fact, there was you know, when you file a Saida, the Saida's got to be filed. And if you see something I'm quote doing wrong, you need to file it right away. Otherwise, you yourself can be subject to criminal sanctions. You're you're doing something they're not flowing with the federal regulations. Right. And one person filed a Saida against me nine years afterwards. Nine years. So he was asked, FBI says, nine years. Why are you filing so late? And he said, I don't want to appear anti-Semitic. Oh, gosh. You just filed nine years after. Oh, wow. You didn't want to you, you didn't want to do it. It's, it's, it's so ludicrous. So what happened was there was a, um, uh, I forgot when Lieutenant Colonel, at that time, Lieutenant Colonel Johnson Needy took over. But as you see in my book, this isn't me saying this. This is people who work for him saying that he was, he hated Israel. He didn't like Jews. And he was going to find a way to, to uh, show that I was committed. He actually said, I should, I should preempt this. He actually, when I was in his office one time with one of his subordinates, his chief, his chief guy there, and um, he asked his chief guy after I had left the office, did he just admit to passing information on to Israel? I said, no. His chief guy, Paul Bernard, who actually went on record in a deposition saying, he never pinned him on there for doing anything wrong. Simonetti claimed that I admitted to him that I had, I had passed class information on the Israelis, but he never filed anything about it either. But he told the FBI I did. So it's like it's all convoluted. But he was good. Apparently, he was trying to find a way to um, uh, find proof that I had done something wrong. So what actually happened was he worked it out with my supervisor, that my third or fourth line supervisor at one point, that they were going to increase my security clearance. What happens at that point is you increase, your it gets increased and they can, it's very rarely ever done, they can interview you, they can put you through a polygraph. They, I didn't know any of these things, but uh, again, I knew nothing about what was going on. I didn't know what was suspected of anything. Mm -hmm. I had no clue, but the, it actually says in documents, let it, let's do it like this, that way we don't have to deal with any attorneys. Because he finds out we're gonna, he's going to get an attorney and we can't do anything. So they're conducting an illegal investigation, an investigation that can only be conducted by the FBI. And they were doing it themselves. And what they arranged was, Alan, you had actually mentioned, I, I was sent to Israel three times from the government. 
actually, I've been to other countries too. I've been sent to, I've been to the Netherlands. I've been to Singapore, uh, England, other places for the work I've been doing. And uh, I was, you could say, I was chosen to be an exchange engineer to do all these things. But behind my back, there were some rumblings that I had no clue. And what I came back from a trip, my last trip to Israel, it's probably around 1995 or 96. And I was, you're supposed to get debriefed, debriefed by different agencies. Um, and I, I was debriefed by specific agencies, which I won't get into, but I was debriefed nine months after I came back. And they started to ask me questions about what hotel I stayed in, like you said, breakfast and everything else. I said, I, I, can't, I look in the mirror sometimes in the morning. I say, who is this? It's like, I'm not going to remember something that happened nine months ago, what hotel I stayed in. I traveled a lot at that point. Right. And they, they, they apparently afterwards, uh, someone from that debriefing was at a conference and my name was mentioned. He said, oh, kind of my yeah, there was something that was sent in about him. Really? I think I'll put it in Saida. I'll put a complaint in it about him. And that started something else, else up. Eventually, it came down to Sydney worked with, with the Defense, Defense Investigative Services, um, our 907, we called them Keystone Cops from Selfridge Air Force Base. Right. And they were going to work out to interview me for this higher level security clearance. The only problem is I told them I don't want it. It's because what you get it with the top secret clearance comes other issues. I didn't want the clearance. I didn't need the clearance. I wasn't doing any work in that area. And my boss was being pushed by Simonini, get him to sign the papers to get his clearance upgraded. And the guy told him he doesn't want it. He says, get him to do it. So I finally did it. It took him a year to do. They used that to, they, they, they used that to have the two agents come in and they interviewed me. One morning, it was sometime, I believe it was in November, December timeframe of 1996. Of I don't remember the exact time frame anymore. But before that, in October, there was a highly classified meeting that went on on my base. And Simonini briefed. Uh, there were people from uh, high level, could have been even the Secretary of Defense. I don't even know who was there or who was in on the meeting, but they, the people high level knew what was going on. And Simonini said, essentially, you've got a spy there. And he said, the best way to deal with this is don't tell him he's being investigated and we'll, we'll do it our way. And he had the FBI in the background. Then after that meeting, the DIS did their, and by the way, once that happens, you kind of like, you have to tell somebody, at least give me an opportunity to explain why um, they would say, well, he didn't go on the, an American air carrier. This law, federal regulation, when you travel over water, overseas, you fly an American air carrier, not, a, not uh, a, um, any foreign airlines. I got permission to fly LL because I felt it was safer. And I, it was signed off as no problem. And I did my reports, no problem at all. But he kind of like skewed the truth. And he would tell people he's not following regulations, he's not doing this. So there was good guy, bad guy, good cop, bad cop. When, uh, when I was interviewed for the higher level clearance, Asked me first guy in the morning, no, no, in very innocuous questions. They went back to Simonini in the afternoon for lunch, came back and said, one guy said, I'm sorry, Mr. Tenenbaum, but um, 
we think you're passing class information onto the Israelis. I said, what? We're just coming from, well, you've violated all these different regulations. So Simonin told them, you know, to ask him this and tell him he's violating. The only person who was violating regulations was Simonini. And eventually it came out that they said to me, you could take a polygraph or you're either going to jail or you'll never work here again. I'm going to throw you in a corner. Mm. I didn't know my rights. I knew nothing about what I could do, what I couldn't do. And I said, I guess I don't have much of a choice now, do I? And I ended up taking a polygraph. Of, they already had the polygrapher in the background. Supposed to be the top polygrapher in the department. Well, they were prepared. Yeah. Oh, they were definitely prepared. And, um, and I had zero clue what was going on. And even at the time, I didn't even tell my wife everything was happening because I, I still had no clue. Realized, like, what, so what's the big deal? I'll take the polygraph. I didn't want to take the polygraph and I'll get out of it. Well, polygraphs are skewed. There, it doesn't work the way you think it works. And I asked that when I went to the polygraph, I asked, so the polygrapher, I want to tape it. He says, no, we don't tape polygraphs. So, but I, I didn't want, I need to tape this because I see, he said, well, you're being, you're being, uh, investigated in the polygraph for, basically passing class information. I said, what is this? Well, it's, it's just to, for, for, for purposes, we need to break something down. Mm-hmm. Well, they already, they already considered me a spy. All they wanted was evidence. And at the polygraph, if you have to understand polygraphs, if they ask you beforehand, is there anything to drink the night before? Did you get a good night's sleep? Are you taking any medications, alcohol? It messes up the polygraph. And when someone's yelling you at the polygraph, I've done other spies before. I've done other Jews before, and I've gotten them to confess. I'll get you to confess too. That's a problem because all of a sudden you're getting hot mm. and you're getting angry, and the polygraph's down the tube. Oh my gosh! They were setting it, you up. Oh, it's the total they were setting setup. you up to fail. David, wow. a quick question though, because while the allegations were coming in. Like you said, your superiors had signed off on all these. They signed off on your going to this country, to that country. It right. would seem to me that to clear you, it would just, your superiors could say, wait a second. We sent him to Israel. We sent him to this country. We authorized his meeting with this and this person. How is it that there was no one who could come out earlier? In other words, everything seemed to be on your shoulders to prove yourself innocent when there was more than enough evidence or certainly your superiors who say, wait a second, we sent him there. We know what he did. Why were they all quiet? Were they part of this setup here? Or were they kept, did they not even know that you were being set up? Um, I believe they knew. And forgive me for saying this, Alan, but you're being logical. And, um, and they weren't looking, they weren't looking to prove innocence. They were looking to prove guilt. And yes, I said the same thing. All they got to, all they had to do, we said this in the book, all they had to do, just go, go check, check the records, check my, go talk to my superiors, go talk to my supervisors. Uh, They accused me of going to Israeli embassy without permission. And I, on record, I have it saying, this is what my supervisor said. They, They, in order for me to go on travel, they have to sign off on everything I'm doing. It was all in the records. When I came back from Israel, I had to write reports up. And those reports, even one report was specifically, it was probably about a half inch thick. And I wrote it up and only six people were allowed to read that report. That's, that's the level it was at. And um, I said, all you gotta do is read the reports. But kind of funny, they destroyed my reports. Right. And there's only, there was only one copy because it goes into a safe. 
but they destroyed the reports. They didn't ask the supervisors. Supervisors didn't didn't offer to give them information. They didn't look at my trip reports. They didn't look at anything. They weren't interested in anything like that. Yeah. This must have been incredibly difficult for your family. Uh, tell us about that day when the armed FBI agents invaded your home. What was it like for them uh, then and throughout those years until you were exonerated? I'll put it like this. I'll paint this. I'll paint the picture. How's that? It's a scenario. I've got at the, that time I had uh, my daughter and my, my oldest son were, were born. My daughter was probably like four and a half. My son probably a year and a half uh, oh. at that time. And we had guests over, two little kids too. And this was, I understand, I, on Shabbos day? Yeah. What's this, I, you were having lunch. What were you doing at the time when they barged in? I, I call it high noon. It was, yeah, it was at right. noon. Mm-hmm. Um, we already had, an, we already knew, had an inclination that they were going to be coming on Shabbos, but uh-huh. what are we going to do about it? Because right. the attorney, my, my phone machine was on Friday night and he left a message said, David, David, they're coming to, to tomorrow. They're going to do a search. And, uh, apparently, well, I'll, I'll break that apart for you. So we're sitting around table. There's a knock at the door and, uh, Jim Kajina was there. And Jim has a warrant to search my house. Mm-hmm. And six, seven. And Jim Kachina is who? He was a special agent in charge okay. of the investigation. And um, he came in and he said, literally, he swore to this in a deposition too. He said, I don't know what I'm doing here. I, they, I told him how to do this. I told him how to do the search. He had actually gone home. I think it was Thursday night or Friday night saying that, uh, don't search this guy's house. Something's wrong. It was based on something that happened previously, but they had come six, seven ages with guns come in. Now imagine little kids, what that does. Oh, and I mean, um, you couldn't even prepare them. They were just so young. There's nothing to prepare. Yeah. They, um, they, um, my daughter for years, it took her for years afterwards that when anybody would come to the home, that nobody that she, that she didn't recognize, she would scream. Don't oh, let them in. Don't want them in. I will never. Some things you can forgive. I will never forgive that. Oh, she was traumatized. And, poor yeah, baby. She actually called me when she was in seminary. She's 28 now. She called me when she was in seminary and she said, I'm starting to remember things. And I said, well, go, go speak to one of your band. You know, rabbits about it. And she did. Mm-hmm. She's fine. She, she's, she's stronger, much stronger because of right. them. And, um, but she didn't understand why are they taking my coloring books? Oh. And, I, and I, I remember they were taking her coloring. They were taking my music book. I play violin. I play guitar. They were taking my Shlomo Karabach songbooks. They were taking four and a half year old drawings. And I said to Kajino, I said, what are you doing? And he said, you never know. There could be some type of code in the drawings or in the, in this, in this notes. I said, you mean my daughter's a spy or Shlomo Karabach's a spy? I said, what are you kidding me? Is this what you're reaching for right now? And yes, you asked what it's done. And and the one thing I actually, I was actually speaking to my wife recently about it. What people don't realize is that in the 18 months, that was close to 18 months I was suspended from my job. uh, I was totally focused on staying out of jail. I was actually told by my attorney at the time, and he he said, uh, one of my attorneys actually in that span of time said, there's a, there's a good chance you're going to go to jail. Apparently we were, we knew what was happening between, there was one faction that was the FBI with Cugino and the other faction, Simonini and the army 
sooner than the other wanted to put me in jail. So you were but mentally I, preparing. I'm mentally preparing. I don't think you can mentally prepare for that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I was like, I was like, my focus was trying to make sure that it didn't happen. And there's nothing you can do about it. So my focus was totally on that. So I was not there for my family. I will totally admit that. Maybe physically to some extent, but psychologically I was not. And even afterwards, when we were suing the government for all this, up for years, I I was not there because they would go on trips. I couldn't because I had to deal with this stuff. And they would go to places without me. I would tell them, just go, go. And I mean, my, my wife, about a year or so ago, was actually showing videos of some of the trips. I'm not in a lot of them. Oh, Pictures I'm because so sorry. I, I, I couldn't be in it. But so, yet, yeah, go ahead. David, right. so the FBI comes in. They take all of your belongings, your kid's <laughs> stuff. They go back mm-hmm. to the office. Takes them, what, a week, two weeks, a month to go through it. And they come back and say, we found nothing. What happens after that? What happened after that was it took them, that was in, say, February 97, up until the following year, I think I got a letter back from the U.S. prosecutor's office, there's nothing here, probably around February or March time frame of the next year, of 1998. I wasn't, and they, and they were trying to figure out at that point, I'll tell you what happened in between this, but they were trying to figure out at that point, what do we do with them? We messed up. And from the documents show, we can't get them on espionage. Let's get them on false statements. They were trying to get it that it was my fault for this investigation that I wasn't, that I told them things like, like um, when you fill out the paperwork for your top secret clearance, I didn't put in things that uh, I apparently, uh, I travel places. And I, and I showed, I said, I did exactly, and I told them exactly the way I'm supposed to, but Simonini was not telling the truth. So it took them, about 18 months before I was ordered back to work, they figured I would not go back because why would anybody want to go back to the situation? And um, I, we, through emails afterwards, we found out what was going on behind the scenes. The lead attorney for TACOM was discussing my situation with the director of TARDEC, which is the research center where I worked, and Emily Bacon was the lead attorney saying, yeah, you know, He's, he can come back, but if he doesn't get a security clearance back, we don't have to keep him. We can get rid of him. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. And we should monitor him too, just to make sure. So they were still considering me guilty. Simonini actually was, he didn't make colonel. So he ended up retiring as a lieutenant colonel, brought back as a civilian six months later. He had to wait the right required amount of time. They changed the position around for him. And he was now double dipping. He was getting his pension from Lieutenant Colonel and he became a high level civilian. So he was making quite a bit of money. And me, um, I had to go and fight to get my security clearance back. David, at any time, as far as you know, did anyone from FBI or somewhere uh, send a memo to Simonini? He said, you know what? You sent us on this wild goose chase for the last year or two and there's nothing here. And your ass is on the line now. Was he ever threatened? Was he ever warned? Or was he just always, was he always looking for something new? Because I want to believe that somewhere there was at least one angel looking out for you, even if the others either didn't want to get involved or they were too afraid or whatever their motivations were. At some point, like they said, the agent who came to your door said, I don't know what I'm doing here. 
obviously he's got a little bit of a conscience. Did he tell somebody that um, maybe Simonini is a problem or maybe we need to be looking somewhere else? Or were you just the exclusive target for two years because for whatever, for whatever motivation? Um, there were, I'll put it like this. What they told, what the FBI told Simonini at one point is he kept going back to them. I think it was uh, maybe the 902nd Division. I don't remember who, who said what, but it was between 902nd um, at Salford Air Force Base, Military Intelligence Division, Simonini, Department of Investigative Services. The FBI said, you need to uh, give us something in writing. Sign off something that says, this and this happened. And um, he never gave him anything. But yeah. why was he big? See, to me, it's almost like they're letting him off the hook. Instead of saying, you sent us on a wild goose chase with nothing, it seems like from your well, what you're saying it is that they're saying, give us something else. Um, you're asking a good question. No one, no one ever really came. Whether they said it to him behind the scenes, but people did come to me afterwards and said, we should never have brought Simonini back. He should have been fired. Uh, but everybody who did this, nobody's been held accountable for it. Uh, we're, we're running out of time. Um, uh, Dr. Tenenbaum, I understand you still work for the Army? Yes. If you want to call so, it Mike, <laughs> so the question is, why do you still continue to work for them after they mistreated you in such an unfair way? So, the, so to give you the backdrop on that is that I've been fighting to keep my job since this happened. Um, they've tried to get rid of me. They tried to fire me. And even now, um, the best example I can give you is that I can't get a job anywhere else. I have tried, tried, but they look up my name and the job isn't there anymore. I've not been promoted in all this time, whereas people, kids come in and promote it above me and they try to get me to work for kids and they don't have the background. It's not that I'm the best engineer in the world because I have experience and hopefully I've done some things. But at one point I was on a phone call with somebody recently. Um, six months ago, and we he wanted it was a different organization. He was a contractor, and he was getting paid from government circles. And we were discussing the program. He said, "You're perfect for my program. We need somebody at your base. You're a paramedic. You can help us with this. You're concerned with the soldier." And then he said, "All of a sudden, I'm not working with you." I, I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Because I just looked your name up. I googled you. I don't trust you. You know, there's there's uh." You've got problems with the government. I said, but you also know I've not done anything wrong. It's not my job to determine who's right and wrong. I said, I think we know who's right and wrong. And he refused to work with me. I complained to my, quote, boss. At the time, he did his investigation. He said, he I talked to him. He said he didn't do that. And by the way, you're in violation of this and this and this. Yeah. Instead of looking at what happened, he was trying to get me on some of the things. So, uh, yeah, do I want to keep on working there? I, I have to support my family. Yes. And yes. and I, my, my client is a soldier and my job has always been to make sure these soldiers come home alive and in one piece. And that's what I've always tried to do. And that's all I keep on trying to do. Right. I urge our with out of time. I mean, this this is fascinating and there's just so much more that people want to know. And and uh, we are out of time. And so I urge our listening audience to order Accused of Treason by Dr. David A. Tenenbaum and read this page turner. Dr. Tenenbaum, thank you for joining us. And on behalf of Alan and myself, thank you to our listening audience for tuning in to The Definitive Wrap. Thank you very much for having me on. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Wrap. 
with your hosts, Bela Sebro and Alan Skorsky. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can listen to the definitive rap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Rap.